yours. For entertainment, maybe. I have. And every time I see them, I go, yeah, right. Like, these guys are really doing something. Yeah, right, like these guys are actually doing anything. And in fact, uh, a number of them have been exposed by the media. They do essentially the same thing we do here with translation. We have, um, we have Spanish translation, and we have an FM broadcaster, and they do essentially the same thing. They get the thing in their ear, and they say, oh, I'm sensing that so-and-so is sick. Well, they wrote that on a card, and somebody said they're wearing this, and they've been exposed time and time again. I think this, more than anything else, in our recent time, has hurt the church's belief, the church's own belief, that God still acts and moves in this world today, that God still supernaturally acts in and among his people. I think those folks scare us away from the fact that God still does stuff in our lives, that God still wants to act in, in, in our lives. Of course, as Christians, we agree and we believe that God is living and that God is active. That God is living and that God is active and that God still heals today, God still speaks today, and God still performs miracles today. As Christians, we'd all say that. But the question I think that we really have is, do we really believe it? Do we really believe that God still does all this stuff today, that God still acts in our world today? I wanted to, for me, the only reason I've come to even faith is because I'm a skeptic. That's the only reason I came to, to know Jesus is because I'm completely skeptical about, about the past and church and organized religion. And when I was younger, I was just such a skeptic. And even in, in all areas of faith, I was so skeptical that I had to investigate, 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 investigate. And so one of the things I want to do today is sort of lay the groundwork and the foundation for why and how we know that God still works and acts today. And then biblically, we're going to go through it a little bit. So hopefully today does not seem too much like a college lecture. Um, Malcolm, you might appreciate that. Um, <laughs> but um, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk a little bit about philosophy, a little bit about the Bible. And we're going to talk about why we know that God still moves today and how important that is that God's power is available to the church. God's power is available to his people. So let's just dig into it a little bit. Um, we, we don't really realize it, but philosophers are extremely important in our world. And the reason why we don't realize it is most of us don't go and pick up um, uh, Plato or, or Aristotle or, or Socrates or Kant or, or Hume. We don't just go pick those books up and say, oh, I wonder what Machiavelli teaches on whatever. I mean, how many of us actually do that in our lives? But the reason why philosophers are so important in our world is that they teach teachers. And philosophers get their minds into the university. So over time, they kind of have this trajectory position in our world, philosophers, that when they're living, no one really cares about them. But, uh, you know, a couple hundred years later, after their works are, you know, rotated and rotated and rotated, people start to care about them, and their ideas begin to shift the thinking of mankind. So in this area, philosophy is extremely important. And like I said, we probably don't all pick up and read this material, um, but it actually is something of significance, even when we talk about culture and the Bible and what it is we believe. 
So I want to talk about a guy named Immanuel Kant for a second. Now, many of you, maybe you've heard his name, maybe in school someplace, and this is the point where you, in the sermon where you check out and, and take a nap. But stick with me for a moment, because it's actually very fascinating. One of the teeny, teeny, tiny shifts that he did in thinking that has gotten us into where we are today. See, Immanuel Kant is kind of known as the father of deism. What is deism, you might ask? Deism is simply that God is not alive and active in our world. Immanuel Kant believed in a relational God. He believed that God was relational and you should have a relationship with him, like most Christians believe. But he also believed that God wasn't really here anymore. He wasn't really active. He really wasn't doing anything. And that that kind of thinking was just crazy. Him and his friend David Hume had a lot to say about this. And they essentially said that God is not living and active in our world. Now, the line of thought that was, pr- was promoted around that time between him, Kant, and Hume essentially says that what we experience, our reality, you guys watch reality TV, right? You know that's not really reality. That's made up. Our re- own reality, what we actually experience in our lives is secular. This is what they're trying to tell us. So reality is secular. And this is the, the mindset that they've tried to promote. Now, as Christians, we know that our reality is, in fact, spiritual. It's not exactly secular. Secular meaning non-religious. Okay? Now, have I lost everybody yet? Okay, good. Some of you are still with me. Um, like I said, there's a little bit of philosophy. We've got to lay the foundation here before we get going. So they've essentially said reality is not spiritual. Reality is only secular. In fact, reality cannot be spiritual because God is gone. And this is what some of these philosophers have said, which has laid the foundation for modern-day atheism. So the reason why this is like basic atheistic belief came out of deism. Okay. I'll explain this to any of you who are completely lost later, but hopefully you guys are tracking with me here. It's funny that we believe that reality is secular, that reality is non-spiritual, because why are ghost shows so popular today? Everybody's like a paranormal investigator, and we say, oh, no, 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 there's no such thing as a spiritual reality. Why is everybody searching for ghosts on the the Queen Mary and and stuff like that? You know, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, we actually believe, we know deep down, that reality is spiritual. In fact, there's not been one thinker in all of history that's been able to demonstrate to anybody and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that reality is secular. We know that reality is, in fact, spiritual. That God actually moves in our reality. That there's a spiritual element to that. In fact, they've been doing more and more and more um, scientific tests that have been proving this. Do, do you know that, that, um, that they've actually scientifically proven that your heart thinks? I know that's, you're thinking, what, this is ridiculous? But you know those videos that you watch of the, the soldier returning home from Iraq and everybody's weeping and then you start crying and snot's going everywhere? You know these videos, right? You see them all the time on Facebook. Um, so they've... They've been showing these videos to people, and they're measuring waves from the brain and from the heart, and they know the heart sends out a signal before the brain does. And in fact, if you're in a room with this type of person, then you, you, if you're not even watching the video, then you start crying too because you see their reaction. 
And they said, there's something spiritual happening here. We, we don't even know what's going on, what these people are saying, or something emotional. But they, the researchers are even beginning to find out that our reality is not necessarily secular. Reality is not unspiritual. Reality actually is spiritual. So we're going to take an even deeper dive into some philosophy here for a moment, and I guarantee you it's a five-minute tangent in philosophy here. How do we know that miracles and that God still intervenes today and from a philosophical level, from a way that we can know and understand? Now, I'd be very happy to explain, if any of you get lost in this, I'd be very happy to explain some of it or even email out some of these notes. But essentially, let's lay this out. I think our world would simply point out that miracles are impossible, right? They would simply point out and say, no, that can't happen. A miracle is impossible. But there must, or that there must be some other explanation. This line of thinking, what a miracle actually is, is it discusses natural law, which, cons- which requires consistency in our natural world. It's thought that these laws are unbreakable. So what's a natural law? Gravity, right? That's unbreakable. It's not, I mean, uh, it's not like, uh, was it Back to the Future 2? Hoverboard? I still want one of those. And next year is 2014, the year of Back to the Future 2. I'm so disappointed by this. But essentially, a miracle breaks natural laws. Gravity. There's all sorts and all kinds of laws that we have in our world that scientists have said this is a natural law. For example, the inception of new life regularly requires the injection of a male sperm into a female egg and a place to incubate for a number of a period of time. Dead people regularly stay dead. And on a regular basis, even when you talked about it, I know you've all tried, water does not turn into wine. Even if you try talking to it, like Jesus did. Some of you are thinking, we could have saved... I'm kidding. As good Wesleyans, none of you have tried that. But the fact of the matter is, there are little things that we've done to demonstrate that we could alter the path of these natural laws. And like I said, let's, this is just like a three-more-minute dive into philosophy here, and then we'll, we'll get back into some scriptural stuff. So as we modify some things in our life and in our world, we see something really, really important in our world, and that is that our lives and our reality is not like set in stone, that we actually have an open world, an open universe, Now, consider this. We can actually change some things that were once considered natural law. So, for example, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, it would have been completely crazy to think that you're going to make a boat out of metal, right? They make boats out of wood because wood floats, right? This is a smart idea. Everybody makes boats out of wood. But then they discovered, I mean, if you were to throw an iron bar in the water, it would sink, right? This is a natural law. This is what happens. But then they discovered if they shaped it a certain way, they can make it float. And a far more effective and long-lasting boat is that they can make it float. People would have thought you were insane for making a boat out of metal. They would have thought you were completely nuts. But we can 
change and alter the course of things. Plants regularly die without water. But if we water them, then they change. Food has a rate of decay. It, it goes bad. Have you ever, my wife and I, we go to the grocery store all the time. We leave it on the counter of some, one bag on the counter on accident. And then we come back and we go, oh, we got to throw that all away. But if you put it in a refrigerator, it lasts, right? Now, I know that this all seems real basic and, and, and un, you know, just real basic in thought. So the question of the possibility of intervention comes up. So if we could intervene in the most simple events, if we could intervene in the most simplest of things, then the possibility of God intervening in our lives is, is there because simply for the fact that we can intervene, that we don't have a closed world. We don't have a closed system. So going back on, on our philosophical tangent here, One, God is alive and living and active, and we understand that reality is, in fact, spiritual. Reality is not secular. These guys like Kant and Hume, although very, very smart philosophers, in my opinion, were wrong. That we can demonstrate that reality is, in fact, spiritual. And if we can demonstrate that and intervention is possible, then that means God can swoop right in and perform a miracle. And we saw it happen over and over and over again in Scripture. So, like I said, let me just conclude it with this. Many people who argue against the existence of the miraculous will also argue that our physical world came from nothing. So let me say that again. Many people who argue against miracles, who argue against God's intervention, against the miraculous, also argue that our world came from nothing. So they argue against miracles, and they argue that something came from nothing. Does that make sense to you? It does not make sense to me. In my opinion, that's a miracle, that our world came from nothing. (laughs) So the miraculous events are possible. Okay, we're done with philosophy. You could just consider that. All right, those of you who really needed that, you've got it. Flip with me to John 14. We're going to dig through the Bible a little bit this morning. John 14, Jesus comforts his disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you that I'm going to pre- I'm sorry, if that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me. So you'll know where I am. You know the way to the place that I'm going. So right here, Jesus has to talk to his disciples. And he has to tell them some things like, hey, guess what? I'm always going to be with you. And the reason why he's got to tell them that is that just moments ago, he told them he would die and raise again. And they were all depressed. They were all sad. They couldn't handle that. And Jesus said, hey, I'm always going to be with you. And in fact, I'm preparing a glorious place, an eternal work for you in heaven. I'm preparing this place for you. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one. He says this all through the book of John to show his divinity. Philip said, 
Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. I love that phrase. Because at one time as I was studying and researching and trying to figure out, you know, like I said, I came to Jesus through skepticism, through being a skeptic in, in even our natural world. And I, it was just skeptical. And I love this phrase that Philip says to Jesus. He says, show us the Father and that will be enough. And I, one time in my life, I really feel like God said, Dave, when will it be enough for you that, that I'm real? You know, when will it be enough? What other book do you have to read? What other person do you have to get inquisitive with? When will it be enough? that I have lived in this world and that I live even now. When will it be enough? Verse 9, Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? And after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not say in my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. And this is where it gets really interesting. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. And they will even do greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I'll do whatever you ask for in my name so that my Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, let me talk about that phrase for a second. You may ask me anything in my name, and I'll do it. Now, some of the things we ask for God are not good for us. And remember when we talked about character, we talked about God wants us to become the type of person that would naturally ask for the things that God wants, right? That we're not asking like, oh God, please give me a... I don't know, a, a Ferrari and, and with, with all the bells and whistles. You know, I really need that. God knows that that's not your greatest need in life. And that that actually might do more to harm you than it would to help you. God knows the load of dynamite that you're asking for. So God wants to train us as his people to naturally ask for the things that are pleasing and good. To naturally ask for the things that God wills. Does that make sense? That God wants us to be the type of person that naturally does his will. That's almost effortless. The whole do not let the right hand know what your left hand is doing is simply that it's so natural that you don't even think about it. Doing God's will. But Jesus says, essentially, that the same works that I did, my disciples will do. My followers will do. And, and you know what? They're going to not just do those things, but they're going to even do greater things. And we look at the Bible and we go, yeah, right. I go to church every week. I have not seen anybody walk on water. You know, I, I go to church every single week and, and I've never seen a blind person from birth be healed. I've never seen that. Yeah, right, Jesus. Well, here's some of the things that Jesus did, and, and, and let's start digging through this some more. So Jesus basically said, believe in me because I've done the, all these works. At least believe in the works themselves. Some translation says miracles, but probably the better um, Greek there is works. Believe in what I've done. So here's what, a little, just a teeny tiny list of what Jesus has done. He performed 37 miracles, which included turning water into wine, driving out evil spirits. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised the widow's son at Nain from the dead. He fed 5,000, walked on water, commanded the storm, 
He healed a man born blind and much, much more. He confronted uh, Pharisees. He went up against the elite. Now, here's the thing. Some of us look at these stories and think, okay, it was such a long time ago that many of these things must just simply be fabricated or embellished. But what I'm simply trying to show you is that a miracle breaks natural law. What I'm trying to show you is, is that God is still alive and acting today. And if God created and made this world, then he made natural law and knows how to break it. And that God actually can still be alive. And, he, and through all these miracles and through everything that he has done, he is simply revealing his mastery over this world. His kingship over it. But the most important miracle that Jesus performs is his own resurrection. And that's the reason why all of us are here today. If Jesus was just a good guy, if Jesus just had a good philosophy, I'm sure a number of books would have been written about him, but no one would gather 365 days out of the year. No one would gather every week, every Sunday. No one would give 10% of their income. Who in their right mind would do that if Jesus was just a good guy? Well, we actually know that Jesus raised from the dead, and we can know that Jesus raised from the dead. A lot of people want to tell us, people in academia who have bought into this whole sense that, that reality is only secular, want to be able to tell us that you can't prove that Jesus rose from the dead. But you know what? I, I, I'm bold enough to say I think we can prove that Jesus rose from the dead, and that is the most important thing. So simply by this fact, Jesus died. His disciples were completely downcast. Some of them, like Peter, you know, Jesus said, go, go ahead and go back to Galilee. I'll meet you there. But then Peter didn't just go back to Galilee and hang out. Where did Jesus find Peter? In a boat, fishing, his old profession, essentially saying, I don't necessarily trust that Jesus is going to come back and take care of me. Let me go throw my, cast my net out and try and catch some fish here and provide for myself. Jesus found Peter fishing. The disciples deserted Jesus. Jesus died. They thought it was over. But when he raised from the dead, it took 12, well, 11, Judas went and hung himself, but it took 11 guys who were with Jesus that saw him. They gave the rest of their lives to doing the miraculous to spreading this good news all throughout the earth, and the church began to sprout up and grow. And amidst persecution, massive persecution, miracles were worked. Like there's this guy named Saul who was breathing out murderous threats against the church, against these people who claimed to follow Jesus. And Jesus came down and spoke to him. And then this one-time murderer, this one-time persecutor, turned into a preacher. And he started preaching the gospel. Now, that just doesn't happen, folks. That just doesn't happen in our lives. That, just, that, that, that would just be too crazy. But why would these guys, like, hide the body? So we know physically, and not just physically, but we know based on historical fact and historical documents that Jesus did, in fact, live, and that Jesus did, in fact, get crucified, and that he was put in a grave. And we also know through those same historical documents that there was no body found there after the third day. You could go um, 
and see Buddha's body. He died of bad pork. How? I, I just don't understand it, by the way. Like, how, how can you follow? The guy died of bad pork. I mean, come on. Anyways, that's my own personal bent. But you could go see Muhammad's tomb. Even though he supposedly ascended to heaven, you could go see his tomb where his body is laid. You can go see the other world religious leaders, their tombs. But you walk into Jesus' tomb and you turn around, there's a little placard that says, he's not here, he's risen. And, and we think, how in the world can this be? Well, these 11 guys, would they just take it as far as to lose their whole lives for this lie? No, they wouldn't. And... and, and these guys, plus the rest of the church that had seen Jesus, the, the 500 that have witnessed Jesus, basically gave their own lives so that people would hear this message. And 2,000 years later, this constantly has survived and gone bigger and bigger and bigger because people have come to see and know that this man named Jesus actually did raise from the dead. But I think that the difficulty in believing in the miraculous is simply that if you believe in it, if you believe that God can still work miracles today, then you're responsible for it. If you believe it, you're responsible for it. And that's terrible. No one wants to be responsible for anything in our lives, right? Your boss goes out and throws out a new assignment, and everybody's like, uh, yeah, I don't want to do that. Because we don't want to be responsible for it. But if we're responsible for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, so what do we do? We tell others about it. We're responsible for the fact that God can still work miracles today. And so what do we do? When we see somebody sick, we pray for them. And we boldly pray, God, we want you to heal this person. Not for our own notoriety or fame, but simply so that your grace can be shown in a physical, tangible way. I love what Paul says to his, his listeners um, in Greece. One of the things he says in Acts 26, 8, he says, Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Why should any of you consider that incredible? Paul's like, these things have become common to me. Why are you considering that incredible? Look at these people. I like to think that, and I don't know this for sure, but I think he's referring to the early church. Look at these people. They're working with the dead because, or they're working with the sick and the dying because they don't fear death. They work with people and they, they pray over people because they're not scared. As Paul is explaining this to King Agrippa, you think of all the different people that have died with this message that Jesus actually rose from the dead. So at, at this point, we come back to Jesus' own words. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. And they will do even greater things because I'm going to the Father. Because Jesus is, in fact, alive. He is not dead. He is still active in this world. He is not inactive in this world. We've seen this many different ways. Because of the great promise that Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. 
He, Jesus, all the way through John 14, has said, because I'm going, you're going to get the Holy Spirit, and, and you're actually going to be able to do these things. Now, the question in Christianity that has come up is the question of cessation. Now, this is a, a big question, and, and I'm going to tell you what that means. Ceasing, basically saying, well, the, the miraculous gifts have ceased. And there's a lot of Christian thinkers that say, no, the gifts of the miraculous, they've completely ceased. And they have some really good points, and, and, and I don't um, argue some of them. Some of them are, are, are totally valid points. But essentially, the question is, did this continue? Many people said, well, after the apostles died, the miraculous died with it. Well, this week I was, I was reading and studying and praying and saying, all right, God, what really happened here? Well, for the first 300 years of Christianity, there's thousands and thousands of miracles reported. But you think, okay, how good was record-keeping back then? Some of them were embellished. Well, they had to have been. But there's this great guy named Augustine of Hippo. Augustine is one of the early church fathers who, who really was a bishop over this entire region and, and did some amazing theological work. And this is a guy that, that when you read him, you could tell his attention to detail and to Scripture. And one of the things Augustine of Hippo said was that he had stopped believing that the miraculous could happen. He had stopped believing that God worked miracles to still today. He thought, well, that's something that the early church had, but we don't have it yet today. And people kept coming to Augustine for healing, and he thought, I'm not a doctor. And so he sent them to a, uh, a shrine of St. Stephen to pray. And the miracles didn't happen because they were at a shrine. The miracles happened because these people started to pray for healing. And Augustine records that in the two years since they had been keeping records at Hippo, that they, over 70 miracles had been verified. That they actually went through and took the painstaking details to find witnesses and to verify these miracles. St. Patrick, we all celebrate St. Patrick's Day, right, on March uh, 17th. We wonder why in the world is this guy so important because he essentially died in around 425 or he was born in three, uh, 345 A.D. and died in like 450 A.D. So why is this guy still relevant? Well, he felt this call from God. He actually felt a voice talking to him saying, go get on a ship. And he went and got on the ship. And as he was going over to Ireland from England, he heard God tell him that I want you to convert all these Druid people. And he records tons and tons of miraculous events. Uh, a, a quick story I'll tell you is once he was going to the, the king of Loeghire, King Loeghire, and Patrick and some of his disciples miraculously appeared to this king in a closed-door meeting. The king invited him to have dinner with him, and the king's attendant, they were trying to kill Patrick, and so they put poison in his cup. Patrick made the sign of the cross over the cup, and the cup froze. And the poison rose to the top, and he simply poured it out, made the sign of the cross, and it unfroze, and he drank it. Now, there's stories like this, and you think, what? This is nuts. But look at thousands of years later, Patrick's effect on Ireland. Sure, they've gone through some of their civil wars and things like that, but essentially Christianizing all of Ireland. Another account, thousands of years later, and there's tons and tons of accounts, so I'm gonna, only going to do a few. But a um, German pastor named Blumhard, he was a Lutheran pastor in the Black Forest of Germany. Most of the accounts of his life are completely boring, totally boring. Now, they say that as he preached, 
his messages were so boring that people routinely fell asleep. Like the entire church slept through his sermons. I'm so glad we've progressed further than this guy. Um, but they would say that the whole church would just sleep through all of his sermons. And one day, this woman who was bleeding from her chest and, and streaking and doing weird things, because there was a lot of black magic happening in the black forest, invited him over to his house and said, I just, I don't want to be bleeding anymore. Bloom, Pastor Bloomhart went to this house, and many people gathered around the house. And he thought, oh my, I don't know what to do with this many people gathering around. He did not even like an audience. He was not very personable. He was a very boring person, like I said. And he had no idea what to say. And his journal records that he simply said, why don't you ask God for forgiveness of your sins and pray for healing? He didn't even pray for her. And instantly, it was the whole town recorded that she was healed. And then over a period of time, they held prayer and revival meetings at their church, and people were healed. Simply for praying, God, forgive me of my sins and and heal me from whatever. I love it hearing those stories because, you know, like like we started with the whole idea of the faith healers. They're kind of out there for their own glory. Whereas you know that God is doing something when somebody as boring as this pastor starts a prayer and healing ministry and, and full, you know, a full a charismatic outbreak happens and people begin to be healed. So there's thousands and thousands of verified stories, even with John Wesley and Whitfield and John Edwards. I was telling Pastor Paul this morning, many, many of you have read the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, because in high school, it's actually required in the textbook to read some of that sermon and to figure out what happened. Um, many of us don't realize that John Edwards was a university president and an extremely sheepish and shy man. And he, um, is it nearsighted or farsighted when you can't see up close? Farsighted. He was very, very farsighted. So as he's preaching, and this is the beginning of the Great Awakening here in America. As he's preaching, he's doing this, reading his sermon from this close. And he was amazed to look up and see that people were praying and falling on the ground and, and miraculous things were happening all around him. He was complete shock to find this out. God still works and moves in our lives. And I think the great challenge which, with each one of us is to say, okay, God, are you moving in my life? It's to figure that out. It's to say, God, are you still moving? Are you alive and active in this world? Because if God is alive and active in this world, then that is a tremendous amount of responsibility for each one of us to pray for healing for people, to pray that God does amazing things, to ask God for things that are so big and ridiculous, like revival, that people would come to know him, to ask for audacious things before God. Because look at the end of of, of John 14, again, or the part that we read. And I will do whatever you ask for in my name. Are you audacious before God? Are you audacious enough to ask God for big things? Not just like you're driving around and saying, oh God, please help me find the front row parking spot. I'm sure none of you do that. Um, But to ask God for things like, Lord, what would it look like if some leaders in the Muslim world came to Christ? God, what would it look like if some of the leaders of Al-Qaeda came to know you? 
God, what would it look like if some of the leaders of our nation came to know you in a powerful way? <laughs> Guys, we should pray for a home before we go overseas. God, what would that look like? Are we asking for truly audacious things? Do we believe that the resurrection actually happened and that Jesus actually still lives? Because to say that Jesus doesn't live is to actually deny the resurrection. I believe that God, all through the New Testament, when you start reading through the New Testament, one of the things you see over and over and over and over again is that his power is made available for the church. But I think God wants us to be responsible with that. And to be the kind of people who naturally would follow after his will to express God's power throughout the world. So many of you are here today, and maybe the, the, the whole idea of the miraculous is just crazy to you. I, I want to just challenge you to say, God, this is cra-. I mean, tell God. He, he knows your heart. He knows your mind. And say, God, this seems crazy to me. Will you help me to understand it? Start there, because God wants to help you understand this. Many of you would say, okay, well, I'm there. I believe it. What do we do now? I love in, in the book of James, James 5, 13 through 16. By the way, if you're ever looking for just a great Bible study, just get through the book of James. It's such a great, easy read. And it's just, James was Jesus' brother, and where Jesus spoke in parables, James was like, I'm just going to tell you straight up how it is. And that's James. So James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Maybe you do believe in the miraculous, and this is for you. If any one of you is in trouble, let them pray. If any one of them is happy, let them sing songs of praise. If any, of you, if any among you are sick, let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, then they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I want to echo a line from Paul here where he said, Why should any of you consider it incredible that God still raises people from the dead? Because the miracle in my life is that I was lost and now I'm found. The miracle in my life is that I was a complete skeptic. And Jesus has brought me to this point of, of a complete believer. The miracle in my life is that I was dead and now I'm alive. I see the world with a whole different lens because of a of, of relationship with Jesus. And I think that the, the New Testament, Jesus, the apostles make it all clear that God wants his church to operate in the same power that he had. Would you pray with me today? Let's pray. Jesus, some of us are just so stricken. Some of us are just so immobilized by our unbelief, by our skepticism. God, some of us just have no clue how to respond to the fact that you still work today. And God, not only do you still work today, but that you told your disciples that we would do even greater things. God, we want to do those greater things. God, we want to see people come to know you in powerful ways. We want to see this community changed. Lord, I'd love to see the crime rate drop in this whole community because of the work that you're doing supernaturally. 
God, we believe that you still work miraculous events. Father, as we think about that, we, we even relift up our sick today. God, those who need healing, Lord, let's not wait to the healing service next week, but we simply pray that you would be with Laura Krimmel. We pray that you'd be with Beverly Gotts, with Jeanette Salgado, with Kame Aloha's parents. Father, we, we ask that your hand of healing would be on them. And God, that you would touch them in a miraculous and a powerful way. God, your love is so great and so difficult to fathom sometimes, but God, you shine it down on us. And Lord, we ask that you would move in this church, God, so that we might be a church filled with your Holy Spirit, a church that's filled with your power. And God, use us in your work to help heal this world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.